0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more.
2: G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, a long road to recovery for communities in Victoria with at least 60 properties destroyed by fire and wind this week. (laughs) Also, more than 20 men from Pakistan and Bangladesh surprise locals in a remote WA community claiming they arrived by boat. We'll cross to our reporter on the ground for the latest. And edged out by tourists, Byron Bay locals work on solutions to the region's crippling housing crisis.
3: For me, I can see some light at the end of the tunnel now with the uh, changes to short term holiday letting laws. We're already seeing a lot of houses coming back into the long term market.
2: Thanks for your company. First to Victoria, where the destruction tally continues to grow after fires and storms swept through the state's east and west earlier in the week. At least 44 properties have been razed by fire in Pomonal near the Grampian Ranges in the state's west, while at Merbu North in South Gippsland, at least 16 homes are now uninhabitable. After a storm, the emergency services are calling one of the state's worst ever. Samantha Donovan reports. Thank
0: yeah. At Mirboo North, about 150 Ks southeast of Melbourne, the State Emergency Service is working hard to clear fallen trees. Locals describe the storm that swept through on Tuesday as being like a tornado that snapped big trees in half. A 50-year-old farmer was killed by flying debris. Mark Burke lives in Mirboo North and is among those cleaning up.
2: But the big logs, and there's some bloody big logs... It's massive. It is totally massive. Like every bit of bush, the Baths Road Reserve, which is a natural reserve been and has been since probably when this town was declared, and it's just devastated. Like you can see through the bush, there's no tree canopy anymore. It's the recovery of that. Like I won't see the end, end result of that in my lifetime. I doubt whether, you know, my kids will.
0: 85-year-old Bernie Mercer has lived in Merbu North since he was a child. He told Network 10 he's never experienced anything like Tuesday's storm.
1: And I thought the roof was going to come off, so I went inside, got out of the way. <laughs> it was horrendous. I've never never heard anything like it in my life. I'm lucky, lucky that I, things turned out better than what I expected. I don't think I've had an emotional day in my life like this. Never. But anyway, i will go and have a cup of coffee and a bun.
0: The Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen visited Mirbu North today and found the damage to be widespread.
4: And also speaks to the ferocity of the wind that came through this area. Big Strezlecki gums, big trees that have literally been uprooted, picked up and uprooted and and, uh, we've seen enormous damage to property. The the wind that has caused that sort of damage is expected to be between 130, uh, around 130 kilometres an hour. And I should also note too, the local community have shared with us also, the impact that the hail at the same time. It was a frightening, a deeply frightening experience to Go
0: through. Tim Weebush is the Chief Officer of Operations for Victoria's State Emergency Service. He says this event ranks in the top 10 worst storms the SES has seen.
2: SES has had three of its busiest years um, with storms and floods right across the state. And this event of around about 5,000 requests for assistance is now in that top 10. So we are starting to see more often these um, extreme weather events impacting on communities.
0: About 33,000 Victorian households are still without power and the government expects some of them won't be reconnected before next week. Victoria's Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio thinks the increasing frequency of severe storms around the country means governments need to do more to strengthen the electricity transmission networks. In terms of what happens with transmission lines at a national level, I've already put on the agenda last year. Uh, conversations uh, with my state counterparts and the Commonwealth Federal Minister for Energy, the need to embed energy resilience in our national regulatory frameworks. Uh, We don't have the luxury of considering these such events as one in 10 year events or one in 50 year events. They are becoming more frequent and they become far more violent and extreme uh, as the years go by. In Victoria's west, at least 44 homes have been razed by fire in the town of Pomonal, population 350. Damon Henrickson's place is among them.
2: You know, it's um, it, oh, everything happened pretty quick, so everyone sort of rushed out and sort of got as much as they could, but, you know, it was kind of everyone was leaving with the expectation that we are actually coming back, you know what I mean? It's, um, it, uh, it certainly went a lot faster and harder than we all thought it would, so...
0: Mark Sleeman is the CEO of Grampian's Tourism. His Pomonal home was saved by firefighters.
5: Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty emotional to know the community members have, um, have, put, their, have put their lives on the line, protecting our houses and they've lost their own. You know, it's, it's really hard to, to deal with.
2: That's Pomonal resident Mark Sleeman and that report by Samantha Donovan. Well, authorities have reached a small, remote Indigenous community in Western Australia's north after more than 20 men showed up claiming they travelled there by boat from Indonesia. The men, believed to be from Pakistan and Bangladesh, are in the main street of Beagle Bay, 100 kilometres north of Broome. Our reporter Erin Park is there. Erin, what is happening there right now?
6: It is actually a really surreal scene here right now, David. We're on the outskirts, the boundary line of the local primary school. So there's a big uh, black fence. Um, However, I can see through it. Uh, We can see the men who have arrived here on the remote Kimberley coast, seated in the shade. They've got lots of cold water and and food. Um, But what has just happened in the last 30 seconds is another police car has arrived and two more men Have got out. So basically how this has played out, there's been three different groups of men turn up um, to where they're being supervised by W police and border force, leaving the inevitable question how many other men could be still in this quite remote sort of bushy area.
2: Just reminders of how this all unfolded today.
6: By the way, there is a big tropical lightning storm just coming as well, so if it gets a little bit windy, I'm just going to duck behind the car. Um, so basically what we know is this morning 21 men were initially found on a bush track by a local family near the Beagle Bay community. They were given food, water, and the shop locals piled them into vehicles and drove them into Beagle Bay. Um, the ABC arrived. Uh, we got there here a little bit quicker than Border Force. It's about an hour and a half drive up the highway, and it was um, – large groups of men sitting under the trees. We were able to speak to one man who um, the others declined to be interviewed and didn't want their faces shown, but we were just able to go up to him and and film him on camera with his consent. He said the group are from Bangladesh and Pakistan. He himself would be seeking asylum. Uh, He said they had travelled five days from Indonesia in a boat. They had all paid a substantial amount of US dollars to do that. Um, They had walked for 35 kilometres this morning, wow. in very fierce heat, um, and we're very grateful that they had been uh, now brought to safety. Since then, two more groups, from what we can just see here, David, two more groups of men have been brought into um, t- to where the group is now gathered.
2: Have you been able to establish those other two groups? Are, are they all were they all on the same boat?
6: The local resident who picked up the second group said uh, there were language difficulties. They haven't been able to get the full story from them, um, but they said they were from the same boat. The same group was their understanding. However, in that quick conversation, uh, there was no mention of other people still being lost in the bush. So we're going to stay here and uh, stick it out and
2: and see what's going to happen next. What sort of health are they in?
6: They appear very well. I'm watching them right now, David. They're, they're all men's, probably aged from about 25 um, to 45. They're quite, you know, well-dressed, well, well dressed, uh, clean and, and healthy looking. Uh, one man was getting his leg bandaged um, and from the brief interactions we've had, they've said that they are well, they are being well cared for. Um, they're now being look, discussed, uh, Border Force is speaking to them one by one in this sort of school, inclusion. We don't know what's going to happen next. Our suspicion is they will probably be transported out of this remote community. Whether they end up in Broome or perhaps immigration detention in Darwin is yet to be seen.
2: That must have been quite a shock for the the locals. What was the reaction amongst those you've spoken to there in in Beagle Bay? Well,
6: in 16 years of news reporting up here in the in the Kimberley. I, I've, I can't think of a, a day this sort of weird. Um, people have been, lots of sticky-beaking going on, people having a bit of a chuckle, but we've interviewed, you know, the community chairman and residents, and their main concern was not to do with biosecurity or, you know, well, how are these boats getting here? They actually were just concerned for the welfare of the men. They said they look like nice men. They've been smiling and waving a little bit and they really said that they hoped that no matter what happens in terms of potential asylum claims, we don't know how many are, are in that situation, but they their main concern was that the physical ordeal that these men have gone through in the last, you know, however many days, um, they're at least now safe.
2: Extraordinary story. Erin Park, thank you so much. Thanks, David. Well, moving on, in recent years, there's been a surge in the number of Australians going it alone in business. It's evidently a very workable option for some, but running a business on your own comes with significant risk. For a start, there's no sick leave or other financial support if you can't show up for work. One reason for the shift towards solo businesses, we're told, is that entrepreneurs, especially younger ones who have for decades bought existing businesses from those selling up and retiring... Can't afford to do that anymore. And economists say it's a worrying trend. David Taylor has the story. Yeah, what would you like me to do today? How would you like a blow dry?
5: Salon owner, Sam Pellegrino, is cutting Deborah's hair. Deborah is one of Sam's more loyal customers, driving an hour to his salon once a month to have her hair done.
0: Um, I've been coming here since I was, oh, probably about 15. So, and also, like, I mean, did my wedding as well. Yeah. Oh Mary wow, did all my wedding.
7: There, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yes. We've had babies, <laughs> yes. We've been through all
5: that, yeah. yeah. It's clients like Deborah that have kept Sam Pellegrino in business for 40 years. But this week, unable to sell his business, he's shutting the doors of his salon for good.
6: This is not the way that I wanted to end up. We had in mind eventually when we were going to retire to, have, uh, to invite all our clients including those two there, and uh, and ever and like a little party. But I'm really sad it's ending like this.
5: CEO of the Hairdressing Council, Sandy Chong, says Sam Pellegrino is one of many hairdressers who have been forced to shut their doors and walk away from their businesses.
1: I think it's very difficult to sell your business. And I know that with our members, um, or with the industry, in fact, what I hear is how difficult it is to find a buyer. What is the problem with that? Well, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, if you look at young people nowadays, it's very difficult for them to Uh, to save money. You look at the increasing interest rates for a start. And so it's really difficult for young people to go, oh, I think I'll buy a business. I'll buy an existing one or even set up one. So in our industry, there's a high number of Uh, sole traders, single operators at the moment, and that certainly contributed to the fact that um, it's very difficult to sell a business, like a growing concern that you may have.
5: In fact, the latest data from the tax office shows 70% of hairdressers operate on their own, without any staff. So what about other businesses? Well, the latest data from the Bureau of Statistics shows the number of solo businesses is increasing at an annual pace of 2.3%, while businesses with up to four staff have fallen by 3.5%. The data worries Sandy Chong.
1: Because I think the thing is that you don't actually think about what could go wrong. Um, If you fell over, would you have income protection? If something happened to, uh, you know, the service that you're giving, we're in the personal services industry, so if something goes wrong, have you got risk insurance? Now, the thing, I think the hard thing though is if something happens to you as far as your health, then what kind of financial backup Do you have? And so I think also if you're looking at getting a loan, if you want to buy a house, you've seen your dream home, it's a lot more difficult to get a loan if you're a single operator.
5: The NAB's chief economist, Alan Oster, says it throws up a myriad economic problems too. He says that's evident in his business surveys, which canvas hundreds of businesses of all shapes and sizes across the economy.
8: What we do see is
6: the smaller you are in the business surveys, The worse the business conditions are,
5: so we don't. And what are they most worried about?
2: Well, obviously they're worried about uh, forward orders. They're worried about their cash flow.
5: And he says there's a very high failure rate among small businesses in Australia. Sort of, typically you find that there's a
6: very much higher, um, essentially failure rate at the very small end. So that could cause some.
5: Great. Alan Oster also makes the point that obtaining data on small business success and failure and why operations may or may not work is hard to obtain. As for Sam Pellegrino, you're shutting the door for the last time there. All right, you're done. You're done. Any last words?
6: I wish show the best of my beautiful clients and thank you again for them to support us all these years.
2: End of an era, that's hairdresser Sam Pellegrino shutting his door for the last time there with reporter David Taylor. This is PM with me, David Lipson. You can hear all of our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Music The boom in short-stay accommodation like Airbnb has transformed regional communities all over the country and locals say not for the better. One of the most dramatically affected is the Byron Shire in northern New South Wales. The council there says a major driver of the region's homelessness crisis... It s- says it's a major driver of the region's homelessness crisis and a 60-day cap on short stays is looming to help ease that. But they're also looking at ways to get more new homes built and they're considering building up instead of out to help solve the housing crisis. Stephanie Smale reports.
9: It's lunchtime in the Northern Rivers town of Mullumbimby and locals will start arriving soon for a free hot meal. We've got curry, vegetable and
8: curried sausages with
9: rice.
8: More people are accessing food than we've ever had in the nine years that we've had the food programs up and running.
9: Mel Williams is a community development worker at the Mullumbimby and District Neighbourhood Centre. She says cost of living pressures and the housing shortage are huge problems for locals.
8: A lot of what's going wrong in this town I think relates directly to the housing crisis.
9: It's been nearly two years since devastating floods ripped through the region, a major hit to affordable housing.
8: Prior to the pandemic, there were low-cost rentals. You know, it might have been a garage or a garden shed or whatever someone might be able to live in. When the floods came through, they were all wiped out. There's people being completely displaced. Families are having to separate and they can't be in their community anymore.
9: The Byron Shire has the worst homelessness figures in New South Wales, adding to the existing issues tree and sea changes moved into the area during the pandemic and short stay accommodation like Airbnb and stays is booming. Sarah Njai is the region's deputy mayor.
3: Just a few weeks before the end of the year watched a mum and her two kids with a kid in school uniform taking her off to the public toilets to brush their teeth. It was clear from the van that was the reality that they were living in. That's what our housing crisis looks like.
9: But she says policies like the 60-day limit on short-stay accommodation that's due to start in September are already
3: working. For me, I can see some light at the end of the tunnel now. With the uh, changes to short-term holiday letting laws, we're already seeing a lot of houses coming back into the long-term market. We still haven't seen a reflection of that in the price um, to make them more affordable, but still...
9: So what else can local governments do to fix the housing problem? In Dubbo, in central western New South Wales, high-rise apartments have been approved for the first time and the south coast community of Marimbula is considering multi-storey developments too. The mayor of the Byron Shire, Michael Lyon, says locals in his region need to start thinking about building up instead of out.
2: There's definitely a move coming from state government, which, which I support, moving towards higher density. We can't keep doing the urban sprawl.
9: Do you think you'll get pushback on that?
2: Well, we get pushback on everything. If you do any development, you know, the, the voices of anti-development will say, no, we don't want things to change. But you can't shirk that challenge, you can't wish it away, you can't complain it away. We need to be constructive, we need to work together.
9: The New South Wales government has set the Byron Shire Council a target to deliver more than 4,500 new homes by 2041. Michael Lyons says he's making progress on getting land that's been locked up for farming rezoned to help get there.
2: We've done a lot of work lobbying the Department of Planning to um, have the rules around agricultural land relaxed. Um, Two thirds of the Byron Shire is constrained by the fact that it's considered regionally significant farmland and we haven't been able to touch it now. It looks like we're going to get there in terms of the relaxation of that.
9: But with the state government's recent admission it's already behind on its housing targets, Will the Byron Shire plans make enough of a difference? CEO of Homelessness New South Wales, Dom Rowe, says high density projects will help there and elsewhere.
7: Increasing density in good development can mean that we can house more people more quickly. Uh, Those houses also tend to be cheaper to build uh, per apartment than, uh, for example, a freestanding house. So that makes a big difference to homelessness rates.
9: But she says social housing, which is subsidised by governments and community organisations, needs to be doubled.
7: We have one in 20 dwellings in New South Wales that are social housing, and that really needs to be one in 10 to address the high numbers of homelessness we're seeing across the state.
9: So as you can see it in rural and regional New South Wales with the housing policies that are on the table, how long will it take to get on top of this housing crisis?
7: At the moment, it's just not going to really affect its change quickly enough. It's really the federal and state government that need to lead the charge. They're the ones with the money, the resources that they can invest in making the biggest difference.
2: That's homelessness New South Wales CEO Dom Rowe ending Stephanie Smale's report. Most of us are now familiar with ChatGPT GPT and other large language models that with a simple prompt or command can deliver all sorts of text-based responses from a Shakespearean sonnet to a road trip itinerary. And we've seen what software like DALI can do too, creating a picture of anything you can describe in any artistic style. Today, we've been given a glimpse of the next giant leap in AI, a software tool that can generate fully formed videos from just a written prompt. It's nicknamed Sora. Angela Lavois-Pierre is our national technology reporter. And just explain for us what Sora can do.
8: Yeah, so it is a pretty significant step forward. It can produce videos up to a minute long from a simple text prompt. So the same way that you and I would speak to each other, you just type it in and out comes a video. It can also generate video from a still image. Yeah, so pretty impressive stuff. But what can't it do? (laughs) That is the question, isn't it? You will see some pretty kooky things going on, you know, in some of the videos, like I saw one of some dogs in a street just now which had four dogs sort of merging in and out of each other. Mm. OpenAI itself is pretty honest about that. In its statement it says that the model will have trouble sort of accurately simulating the physics of a complex scene. So, yeah, you know, you might take a bite out of a cookie and there will be no bite out of the cookie. Mm. That's the example that they give anyway, But look, as with all forms of AI that we've seen, we can expect it to probably improve over time. But yeah, it's good, but it's not perfect for now.
2: Mm. So it will improve. I think that's pretty clear. And at risk of leaping straight into the machines are going to kill us narrative, (laughs) what are the risks here?
8: You kind of already know some of the risks because we're already living with Mm. them, right? It's the trouble with not knowing what's real and what's fake anymore. One Twitter user did make the remark that the future of porn just changed forever. So you can imagine some pretty, you know, what that means, we've already seen that in terms of image-based abuse for women primarily. That said, OpenAI does have safety commitments that it's made. It's not actually released the model to the public at this stage. It's only released it to researchers that it calls red teamers. So these are experts in areas like misinformation and bias and all kinds of things who go in and basically just try and kick holes. They look for what's wrong with the model so that they can tell open AI and that they can fix it. It's adversarial testing. If it is released to the public, there will also be watermarking mm. available. So that's, you know, a way, to sort of tell the provenance of the video. But the thing about watermarking with generative AI is that there are workarounds. So if you do want to conceal the origin and you're clever about it um, and you have those skills, you can do so. But look, there's been a bit of a, hobby a sort of skill set that's developed on the open web which is jailbreaking these models which basically just means finding workarounds for the safety measures it's put in place not always for nefarious purposes mind you very often just to kind of point out to open ai mm. or you know the company hates hey, isn't as safe as you said it was
2: what videos are being used to train these video tools because you know the copyright has come up before when it comes to ai and, and no doubt it will come up in this space
8: Yeah. So what OpenAI has said publicly so far, the videos that were used to train this model were licensed from copyright holders or they were publicly available. So sending a clear signal there that we didn't pinch them you know, please don't sue us. Of course, the New York Times is currently suing OpenAI and its partner Microsoft claiming copyright infringement of their news content and related to ChatGPT, and that's seen as a pretty important case, you know, if that goes against OpenAI, it could have real impacts for, I mean, the extreme version of that is that they may have to scrap it and start again. So obviously OpenAI, very, very keen to avoid any uh, more copyright battles.
2: That's Angela lavoie pierre The United States has accused Russia of developing a new anti-satellite weapon after US media reported advancements on a space-based nuclear weapon. The Kremlin has dismissed the warning as a malicious fabrication to convince US Congress to approve more money for the Ukrainian counter-offensive. Space experts say that is possible because the best way to take out satellites is not with nukes. Rachel Hayter reports.
4: Around the world, the headlines are dystopian. Russia's advances on space-based nuclear weapon draw US concerns. Russia's terrifying threat to millions. From Russia with nukes. And US House Speaker Mike Johnson is doing little to play down the reports.
7: We requested a meeting uh, with the president. I did. We did in writing uh, in January. It's a serious matter. Some details have leaked. There's lots of conjecture, but... What we're permitted to say in an unclassified setting it is that it is a very serious matter. It does involve Russia. It's not a matter that can involve delay. It's something we have to address seriously and on an immediate basis.
4: US House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner gave a bit more detail on the nature of the threat.
7: The uh, Department of Defence today
5: has indicated that what we're discussing is a Russian anti-satellite weapon.
4: The Kremlin's response is scathing. Spokesman Dmitry Peskov saying the White House is trying, by hook or by crook, to get Congress to approve more money for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And analysts believe that's possible.
10: It does seem rather ludicrous to propose this. So, I mean, my reading of this is that it's political flim-flam.
4: Associate Professor Alice Gorman is a space expert from Flinders University.
10: It's very vague to say nuclear weapons are being developed in space. The first thing is, what would their target be? If we're talking about Earth orbit, there's a multitude of military satellites already there, but the easiest way to disable them or to prevent them functioning properly is not likely to be a nuclear explosion.
4: She explains nuclear power sources have been widely used in space.
10: These are radioisothermic generators that use a short-lived radioactive isotope to provide energy. So some of those are on the Moon, there are some that have been used on satellites, but in general, the agreement is now not to use nuclear fuel sources in orbit just in case a satellite crashes to Earth, which has happened and contaminates terrestrial. Environments.
4: And the closest the world has come to nuclear weapons in space is high altitude nuclear tests. One of the most famous of those was deployed by the United States in 1962. It was called Starfish Prime.
10: It detonated at an altitude where it affected a lot of satellites that were in orbit and basically disabled their electronics. So after that detonation, the nuclear test ban treaty was negotiated and came into effect. So there haven't been any deployments or tests of anything nuclear that exploded uh, in space since that time.
4: And if that were to change, the effects would be catastrophic. As Emeritus Professor at Western Sydney University and Professorial Fellow at Bond University, Stephen Freeland, explains.
10: That destruction would of course be indiscriminate if one country or entity were to set it off it may well have an effect of also destroying their own assets.
4: He says powerful nations already have effective ways of disabling enemy satellites.
10: Either temporarily or even permanently. There's a whole range of methodologies of jamming a satellite, another process called spoofing a satellite, which is where you send essentially incorrect information to that satellite.
4: And while satellites are used by militaries for communication, navigation and surveillance, their main purposes are commercial and civil.
10: You and I and everybody listening use space 20 or 30 times a day without even thinking about it. And if crucial satellites were destroyed, then literally our infrastructure would collapse.
4: Stephen Freeland argues the arms race in space is deeply troubling and the future of humanity depends on the peaceful use of space.
2: Rachel Hayter there. That's PM for this week. Technical production by Lena El and Nick Dracoulis. I'm David Lipson. We'll be back next week. Thanks for your company. Good night.
4: I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. You've probably been seeing a fair bit of Taylor Swift's name this week. Yes, she's in Melbourne and she was at the Super Bowl. But perhaps more intriguing is her role in the upcoming US election. Today we look at why Trump supporters are so willing to believe conspiracy theories that she's in cahoots with the White House. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener. app.